Good evening to you all, and uh, it's a great pleasure for me this evening to introduce James Pennell to you all, uh, uh, who will speak on the theme, the significant and pertinent and topical theme, renewing the left's ideology, what should be the principles and goals of the centre-left today. This, lect le this lecture is in the uh, Ralph Miliband lecture series this year, focused on the future of capitalism. And of course, Ralph had very distinctive views about renewing the left's ideology and generally took the view that where you stood on the issue of inequality defined in some senses how you stood on the left-right divide. If you were relaxed about inequality, you stood on the right of the center. And if you were, took inequality as a core issue in your politics and your policy, then on the whole, it marked you out as someone on the center-left or certainly in that direction as a broad starting point. But of course, many issues today cut across the center-left spectrum, like climate politics, a commitment to a low carbon economy isn't necessarily an issue that belongs to the left or to the right. And as we've seen in the last 10 years or more, and I won't put this too controversially, center-left parties have certainly in this country, government pursued a number of foreign escapades, wars, which may not easily fit within some people's certainly conception of what a center-left ideology might be. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to introduce James this evening. I won't say much since he's a public figure and known to many of you. He's obviously a member of parliament and is a director of the Open Left Project at Demos. Previously, he was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. He joined the government in 2004 as an assistant whip in the end, toward the end of that year. Before entering Parliament in 2001, he was Head of Corporate Planning at the BBC and then before that worked as a Special Advisor on Culture, Media and Sport and the Knowledge Economy to then Prime Minister Tony Blair. He's also been involved in local politics as a councillor. Before that, in the earlier days, although not so long ago, in your case, he read PPE at Bale College, Oxford. Uh, he is uh, uh, part of a, a number of uh, members of the government and uh, recently member of the government who's spoken here. We had, of course, David Miliband, son of Ralph, and Ed Miliband, also son of Ralph, speaking in the last 12 months. Their speeches are available as, download, uh, as downloads on the other C websites. But it's a great pleasure to have James Pennell here this evening thinking about a pretty critical issue in political terms. So please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Well, David, thank you very much for that um, uh, very kind introduction, and thank you to uh, all of you for attending uh, this evening. I guess where I want to start is by asking uh, what may seem a slightly strange question, which is, what is the point of a lecture by a politician at a university? I mean, actually, uh, 50 or 70 years ago, that would have seemed a very odd question uh, indeed. People like Tawney or Beveridge uh, were working in this very university. Um, Tawney had as much claim to be the sort of grandparent of Labour's post-war education policy as Beveridge did for its welfare policy. They were just as important, in fact, perhaps more important as policy advisors than they were as academics. And yet today, I sometimes feel as if there is a bit of a chasm between politics and academia. It feels a bit as if 
politicians and academics are sitting in different corners of the room, politicians guarding their monopoly on power, and academics the perfection of their knowledge. As with so much else, I blame Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Though she had pet academics, and sometimes seemed to have swallowed whole a shallow version of monetarism, she didn't seem to like universities very much. Thatcherism ran down many of our traditions, and one of them was respect for the expert. In fact, I think she blamed experts with mu for much of what had gone wrong in Britain. Experts had said that we could manage demand. Experts had said that we could have a more equal society. Experts had said that we could afford the post-war welfare state. And she believed that on all three of those, experts had been wrong. Thatcherism tore up centre-left politics by its roots. And in the 1980s, we were too intellectually weak and too politically divided to develop a confident and compelling response to Thatcherism. And then the fall of the Berlin Wall felt like a death blow for what remained of centre-left ideologies. Socialism had become a lost dream, extreme and idealistic, certainly something of the past. Now it felt like all that we had left to believe in was what worked. Now I'm a passionate defender of New Labour. I believe that Britain is a better country than it was in 1997. We are more tolerant and open. We have better public services and lower poverty, and we are greener, safer, and stronger. Unlike in 1979 or 1997, the main opposition party isn't campaigning for a repudiation of what the current government uh, has as a philosophy. They're just trying to say that they can achieve our goals better than we can. This conservative desire to present themselves as progressives is in fact a massive act of flattery for this Labour government. And it demonstrates that the centre of gravity in British politics has, certainly on domestic policy, been shifted to the left. Now I believe this should give Labour strategic confidence as it approaches an election it should, I believe, given the circumstances, win. The Tories' slavish obedience to focus groups and to opinion polls, provoking the odd policy zigzags that we've seen in the last month, suggest they are essentially confused about what they think. They are just desperately trying to haul themselves over the finishing line whilst offending as few people as possible in the process. Now, for someone like me who believes passionately in the potential of politics to transform people's lives and change the world, it's a pretty dispiriting sight. And actually, it's a, it's a challenge to the Labour Party as well. Over a decade in office means that incumbency is now a real disadvantage. Everyone is angry about something, and to turn that incumbency into an advantage, we need to show that we've learned the lessons of government and are now clearer and more radical about the purpose of our politics. And that's why tonight I want to talk about the topic of centre-left ideology. I don't come here tonight to praise New Labour, though I do believe it deserves more praise than it's currently getting, nor to bury it, but to say that we must move beyond it. And to show how this might be done, I want to talk about two ex-LSE professors, about Tawney and about Sen, and use them to show how maybe academics and politicians could inch a little bit towards the centre of that room I mentioned at the beginning. 
Now, of course, there's a perfectly good argument that having an ideology in politics is actually a dangerous thing. Stalin and Pol Pot's victims have ideologies on their gravestones. But as Sen argues in the idea of justice, this is because those ideologies were extreme. Ideologies don't have to be murderous. They can be moderate. As Sen says, the remedy for bad reasoning lies in better reasoning, not in giving up reasoning altogether. In this tradition, Tawney's political writing was an attempt to clarify the guiding, uh, guiding ideology of the Labour Party, the absence of which he diagnosed as the reason for its defeat in 1931. He argued that the Labour Party and the Labour government had been hesitant in action because it was divided in mind. It did not achieve what it could because it did not know what it wanted. Tawney defined what a moderate ideology would consist of. It said it would consist of values, of an idea of society, and a method for bringing that idea of society about. And I want to talk about all three of those uh, uh, a bit later on. But before turning to, uh, to doing so, there's another reason which uh, people might think uh, is important to think about, about whether we should have an ideology or not. And that reason is that traveling light in politics may have its advantages. It allows you to float on public opinion, to react quickly to the press, to abandon softly held views. Indeed, this may be the source of David Cameron's tactical strength in opposition, but what would be his strategic weakness if he got into government? Indeed, for Labour, the absence of such an ideology might have helped us to get elected, but caused three real problems in government. First, it made it hard to prioritise. In difficult spending rounds, we lacked a lodestar on which to prioritise between many valuable competing priorities. Second, it created blind spots. For example, if we thought harder about why we wanted choice in public services, we wouldn't have stopped reforming our democracy as well. We'd have been clear that choice in public services implied the need for choice in democracy too. It would have implied the need for electoral and constitutional reform. And third, that lack of ideology made it hard to build an enduring coalition for change. I believe that what Labour stands for today is actually less clear than it was in 1997, and I think that one of the key reasons for that is actually we haven't given people an ideological washing line on which to hang our different policies. So a lack of ideology may help you win power, but I think it makes it hard to use power well. Now, ten years after diagnosing a lack of ideology as being the reason for the failure of the 1931 government, Tawney decided to propose a cure. And the cure that he proposed... Uh, he put in an essay entitled Weeming Freedom, which was written in 1944 as an attempt to persuade the growing middle classes of Britain that they had nothing to fear from a potential post-war Labour government. In a move repeated by Roy, ha Roy Hattersley 40 years later, Tawney claimed the banner of freedom for the left. He acknowledged, of course, that the British establishment had always tried to cloak themselves in freedom and that therefore it was incumbent on him to say what he meant to say why what he meant by freedom was different. So first he pointed out that arguing for freedom in 1940s Britain was often just the defence by the privileged of what they already had. And second he said that freedom implies a power of choice between alternatives 
a choice which is real, not nominal. Now that language, interestingly, echoes almost uh, to the word language in Amartya Sen's latest book in which he talks about freedom as being real opportunity, the freedom that a person actually has to do this or be that. The stress on real as opposed to nominal freedom is what joins Sen and Tawney. Now just in passing, it's worth saying Amartya Sen is perhaps one of the best counterexamples to what I said at the beginning about the distance between academics and politicians. He is quoted by politicians of all colours, uh, and he's active himself in uh, the politics of famine prevention and indeed in his recent work on trying to define a new way of measuring economic and social progress. But his work does present a couple of difficulties for politicians like me who think that his work is truly inspiring. The first is that capabilities itself is a bad slogan. Uh, I've tried to use it myself on Newsnight, for example, and it wasn't met so much with misunderstanding as with outright derision. So I think we need, as politicians, to do that sort of rather shallow-sounding thing of trying to find a better soundbite. And I think a better way of translating Amartya Sen's ideas into public discourse is to talk about power. His idea of capability is what most people would understand as having the power to do something. His idea of a functioning would be what people actually decide to do with that power. The second problem that we face uh, is whether Sen's approach works as effectively or clearly for industrialized countries as for developing ones. His idea of justice grows out of the manifest sense that we have of injustice. Um, the examples that he quotes at the beginning of his book from Dickens that people know, and children in particular, know what is right and what is wrong, and that we need to rediscover that as the basis for our moral philosophy. But when you go through his examples in, uh, in his philosophy, they are often more compelling, I think, when we are talking about extreme examples of injustice, when you're talking about uh, famine or examples of women being deprived of the right to participate in democracy. And it's not to say that there isn't injustice in industrialized countries. Of course, there is injustice. But it's less manifest. It's more complex and contested. It doesn't just spring up in the way that a, a moral fable does out of a Dickens novel. And that presents a difficulty for turning his moral philosophy into detailed policy. Now, I think the way forward to resolve uh, this conundrum is to hold on to Sen's powerful insights about real freedom, about human agency, about the need for both pluralism of need and solution, but combining these with Tawny in, two, in the two following ways. First, I think we need to think seriously about the demanding conditions that have to apply if people really are to have freedom. And secondly, we need to remember that most of what matters in life is relational, whether family, work, relationships, or culture. We are not natural-born choosers, sitting alone in our rooms, silently counting our power. Human relations are the essence of a good life, and they need to be the basis of politics, too. Now, the first part of this argument is fairly well-trodden. Freedom conceived as the absence of constraint is, for many, no freedom at all. Therefore, the state has an essential role in ensuring everyone can develop the core, the core capabilities that they need to have any chance of leading a life they have reason to value. The exact entitlement will vary over time and according to democratic debate. But the following should be fairly uncontroversial. Good health and education, 
a decent standard of living, secure housing, basic democratic and legal rights, access to employment, personal and physical security, and a sustainable environment. So those are the core capabilities which most people uh, may agree are the right ones in our, in our society. But they're not enough. We also want to extend the range of capabilities from which people can choose. Those capabilities won't be relevant to everyone, but we want them to be there so that people can discover them. As a society, we cannot avoid making judgments between poetry and pinball, even if we're not all going to be poets or even read poetry. This, and not market failure, explains why we fund the BBC, academic research, or community sports facilities, because they enrich our society and our choices. The state needs to make sure that such choice is real, not nominal. So we want to guarantee a core, a core of capabilities. But translating this from an abstract goal to an actual reality is incompatible with unjustified inequality. I think that's important to say because sometimes I think people believe that capabilities theory is a way of escaping difficult questions about inequality. But actually I think they bring you back precisely to those questions. Equality of opportunity is meaningless if certain groups in society always get the opportunity while others never do. A more equal society is a precondition for everyone being able to reach their potential. So when deciding where public funding and political capital should be spent, we should prioritise those inequalities that prevent people being powerful and those inequalities which stop society being reciprocal. So I just want to say a few things about the kinds of inequalities that that means we should prioritise. The first is that we should eradicate child poverty. Growing up poor in relation to others is incompatible with real freedom. For adults, there is a more complex interplay between our concern for inequality, the reality of structural disadvantages, and our respect for effort and merit. Our goal should be what Marx Steers calls active equality. This means challenging the injustices that drive inequality at source by ensuring the rules of the game are egalitarian and democratic. And essentially that's something which I think Marx Steers is contrasting to a kind of passive equality where we take the distribution of income as it is, regard the Gini coefficient as unacceptable, and then try and compress those differences without tackling the source of the inequality. And what I want to do is make an argument for redistribution, but one that is wider and more ambitious than just trying to compress those differences. This would mean creating the conditions for people to act together to achieve the outcome that's right for them through their own efforts on their own terms. It means challenging the injustices that drive inequality themselves rather than just dealing with the symptoms. It's an ambitious and demanding egalitarian insight but also one that I believe chimes with our moral intuitions. It recognises that people's lives and the conditions of society are scarred by the inequalities that arise from structural injustice. These must be challenged, but in a way that gives people the real power to bring about a more equal society, and asks what they are prepared to do to further that goal. So redistribution is essential, but not enough to make sure that we achieve active equality. So I think that sends philosophical insights take us a long way down the road to renewing the centre-left's ideology. But I don't think that they give us everything that we need in politics. And to do that, 
I think we need to balance our goal of having powerful people with the second goal of having a reciprocal society. Or in my shorthand, I think we need to marry Sen to Tawny. The difference, I think, between the Labour and the Liberal traditions is that where Liberals start from the right of the individual to be an autonomous agent, Labour starts from the, from the importance of human relations. This does not mean subsuming all those relations into the state, but reflecting their central importance in our politics and in our society. Starting from our shared lives and shared fate leads us beyond liberalism. It reminds us that power isn't neutral, but needs to be organized, fought over, and negotiated. And it reminds us that we don't just accept the natural inherited or market outcome, but judge together what is acceptable, and if it's unacceptable, then we come together to change it. Statecraft then becomes more than just managing the state. It means remembering that the state can bully people, that society can discriminate against them, and that markets can cause unnecessary suffering. Our task then becomes to make the individual powerful in respect of all three, but also to use all three, the market, the state, and society, to make the individual powerful. I think the people, some, people on the left sometimes get themselves into a muddle by trying to set one of these three against each other by saying that we need more of one or less of another. My argument is that in the abstract, this is not a very helpful line of inquiry. We need enough of each and the right bits of all. Now, on first hear hearing, I'm sure that sounds just as abstract and unhelpful, so I want to say something more specific about all three, starting with the market. Lefties like me should love markets. When they work, markets put, the hand, put, put power in the hands of the individual, not of a central organisation. If people think kicking a football is a skill they admire, then they collectively decide to reward that skill and don't have to get anybody's permission to do so. Markets are radical. They allow modes of life that are no longer valued to ebb away and new ones to grow. At their best, they can be liberating, anti-dictatorial, non-hierarchical, creative, and iconoclastic. In other words, people on the left shouldn't just tolerate markets because they are unavoidable or because they are efficient. We should, we should value them and celebrate them because when they work, they do good. However, of course, that's only true if markets work. A point Tawny made forcefully in saying that since monopolies limit the consumer's choice to goods of the quality and price supplied by the monopolist, they create semi-sovereignties, semi-sovereignties which are the direct antithesis of anything that can be, or in the past has been, described as freedom. So following the credit crunch, of course, we need to learn uh, those lessons about financial markets. But we need to broaden those insights to other markets beyond just financial services. We need to rediscover in other parts of our economy the cartel-busting credentials that Labour developed in its first term when we introduced the Competition Act and created Ofcom, for example. And we need to revive our attack on concentrations of economic power in relation to patterns of ownership, corporate governance, and the distribution of power and rewards within the British firm. Tawny also reminded us that markets overpower people, not just through monopoly, but through fear. He said, the brutal fact is that as far as the mass of mankind is concerned, 
it was by fear rather than by hope that the economic system was kept running. So for people to be powerful, they need to be secure too. And what this recession has shown is that we don't protect people as well as we should do. And we need to modernize the welfare state again so that it protects people better in future. And I would suggest three big reforms to start to do that. First, we should guarantee everybody work. Everybody who is looking for work should be guaranteed that within a year, if they hadn't found work themselves, the state would find it for them. There would be good minimum wage jobs, but job seekers would then be required to take those jobs or lose their benefits. Second, we should improve the incentives for people to protect themselves by reducing the penalties for saving in the benefit system and making tax breaks for saving much more progressive than they are at the moment. At the moment, they favour people who are richer. They should be the other way around. Third, we should aim to ensure that anyone who works hard earns enough to have a decent life. This could be done through a combination of a higher minimum wage or campaigns for a living wage, which would be supported by offering employers an incentive to have a higher wage floor, perhaps by reducing national insurance contributions for those who did. I also believe that we need to look again at the old laws on usury, which used to prevent exorbitant interest rates being charged through a legal cap on the cost of credit. If that meant that some people perceived to be riskier borrowers could not access credit legally, we'd need to find a different answer. For example, providing public funds to bring credit to those groups funded out of 1% of the bailout which has gone to our banks. So we do need the state to make people powerful. But we also need to remember that the state itself can overpower people. Like the market, we need to make sure that it is a good servant, not a bad master. As a first step, I think that means making democracy more representative by having electoral reform for Westminster and for the Labour Party, having primaries to select our candidates. To prevent financial power dominating political power, we should put a very low cap in the hundreds or low thousands of pounds on political donations to stop money buying influence. A rich and vibrant democracy, democracy does not come for free. So we need to bite the bullet of public funding for political parties. But we don't just need real choice in our democracy, we need choice in public services too. It's not just that this works better, though the evidence shows that it, uh, that it does. It's also about principle. Both Tawney and Sender's ideas start from human agency, that life is about what we do, not what is done to us. This should be the guiding idea of our public services. As Saul Alinsky, the father of the Chicago School of Community Organizing, said, and I quote, we learn when we respect the dignity of the people that they cannot be denied the elementary right to participate in the solutions to their own problems. Self-respect arises only out of the people who play an active role in solving their own crises and who are not helpless, passive, puppet-like recipients of private or public services. To give people help while denying them a significant part of the action contributes nothing to the development of the individual. In the deepest sense, it is not giving, but taking taking their dignity. It will not work. 
Labour was not wrong, I believe, to want to give people choice. We were wrong when that choice wasn't real. For example, school choice works very well when people have a, a choice of schools, but when it ends up with oversubscribed ch schools choosing the pupils, then that promise of choice turns out not to be real. To make the choice real, I believe that we need more reform, not less. We need to give children and parents real power by opening up catchment areas and allowing the supply of schooling to expand to meet changes in demand. I would say that people should apply to schools two or three years in advance so that oversubscribed schools can expand, new providers can come in, and undersubscribed schools be taken over or closed down. So with the state, I believe that we need choice both in democracy and in our public services. But in addition to using the market in the state in the way that I've described, we need to remember the third tool that we have. And that third tool is society. The Labour tradition has always been communitarian in spirit, but not always in practice. Tony Blair, for example, came to national attention for the first time after the Baldwin murders when he started to talk about the fraying of our society. Before him, Hugh Gateskill, in his famous 1959 conference speech, had talked about how he wanted a society built on social cooperation, not on competition. But what's interesting is that neither of them developed a goal for turning that idea of society or community into something which could drive change. And because of that failure to do so, which has been repeated again and again in Labour politics, they drifted away from that idea, and they ended up focusing on delivering better public services and on redistributing resources. Without a clear method, the goal of, the goal of strengthening society fell by the wayside. Now, why did that happen? Why could we not find a policy tool to turn that idea into reality? I think actually the reason is that we were looking for it in the wrong place. We were looking for ways that the state itself and alone could strengthen society. Was actually the, the best way of doing it was staring us in the face, was there all along. The best way of doing it was through the practices of the labour movement and the ideas of organisation, of reciprocity and of political action on which the labour movement was built. Because the truth is that under the harshest conditions, our forebears came together to care for each other and organise to resist the power of capital. That was the founding idea of the labour movement. But after 1945, we forgot some of those lessons and neglected the habits of association and organisation out of which labour had grown. Since 1945, since the 1950s, very little has been done to renew and refresh the social capital of the labour movement. Trade union membership, for example, has fallen from over 13 million, 13 million at the end of 1979 to around 7.5 million today. Barely 15% of people in the private sector are members of the trade union. Labour Party membership itself shows exactly the same story. It's now well under 200,000, less than half the level it was in 1997. In contrast, in the early 50s, there were over a million Labour Party members. Now, politics treats these trends, the decline of party membership, of activism, as if somehow they are exogenous and irreversible. But actually, the truth is that people can be organised. You only need to look at the power of single-issue campaigns or the power of social networking for politics to show that people do care and people still can be organised. It's just that politics itself has largely stopped doing so. 
Organization is how we make empowerment real. Organization is how we take empowerment out of seminar rooms like this and onto the doorstep. As Saul Alinsky again said, if the people have the power to act, in the long run, they will, most of the time, reach the right decisions. The alternative would be ruled by the elite, either a dictatorship or some form of political aristocracy. To avoid that, just as Labour needs to go back to some of the thoughts of its early thinkers, it needs to go back to the practices of its pioneers as well. A democratised state and a constrained market are necessary for a reciprocal society, but the main agents, in the end, are people and the way that they relate to each other. This insight has significant and indeed challenging implications for the Labour Party itself. We need to go from being essentially a machine for electing people to one which actually achieves change itself in communities. We need to not just represent people, but know them and work with them and organise them. And it also means understanding that sometimes we will work with groups in civic society, but that sometimes our interests will differ and they will campaign and work against us. In short, I believe what we need is an organised pluralism, not an atomised majoritarianism. That doesn't mean that the state can't do anything when it comes to society, that the state suddenly leaves uh, the stage. Nor does it mean, as the conservatives sometimes say, that actually the way to have a stronger society is to have a smaller state. It's not state or society, but the state for society. This means the state, when it comes to society, should focus on its supporting role and how it can help society to heal itself. How can it do this? Well, first of all, it can ensure that there is space for civic organisations independent of both market and state. That's why we should value the autonomy of our universities, the BBC and Channel 4, self-governing schools and hospitals, housing associations, trade unions and professional organisations. Such institutions resist the power of the market and balance the power of the state and are also vehicles for sustaining norms of behaviour which are important to a better society, whether academic rigour, independent journalism or medical professionalism. So that's the first thing that the state can do. It can create space in which these organisations can grow and be strong. Secondly, government can help society talk to itself. Another important insight which I think Amartya Sen uh, uh, argues for convincingly in his book is that a democracy is not just a method of uh, picking a government. It's also a place where people can talk to each other. He argues for democracy as an idea of discussion and I think that's something which is very important um, within our society. It's a further reason why we fund, for example, public service broadcasting, universities, or defend a free press. Because they are the collective water coolers where we find flaws in previous ideas and discover the appeals of new ones. Such self-criticism is the secret weapon of democracies. Third, government can make sure that communities are not overwhelmed by the state and are able to renew themselves, that regeneration projects aren't just things which are dropped from the state onto unsuspecting communities. To kickstart this process, we could use 1% of the money spent on bailing out banks to create locally governed endowments to fund the projects that the state shouldn't and the market wouldn't. These, these could range from setting up new businesses in poor areas to investing in the infrastructure that will help those businesses to thrive. 
So a certain amount can be done by the state to help society to strengthen itself. But doing too much would not just be ineffective, it would be counterproductive. It would undermine the very reciprocity it aims to foster. If we are only compassionate or responsible, for example, because the law requires us to do so, we are neither. We are merely law-abiding. In the end, genuine reciprocity is about human decency. Putting in an honest day's work, caring for your family, treating others with respect. Self-government must be partly about self-policing. This is demanding. It asks something of people. It means sharing the task of governing the people who need to be given the tools and the space to knit those relationships together, sharing the task of governing with the people themselves. Now, there's a long-standing, but I think largely circular, debate about whether the labour tradition is more liberal or more communitarian. In truth, I think it is distinctive from both. Liberals cannot conceive of the scale of association and resistance to market power necessary to preserve liberty. And communitarians are unaware of the leadership, innovation and individual initiative necessary to preserve an effective sense of community. To renew an idea of society based on association is a very exacting task. But it defines what is at stake in rejecting both a passive sense of community inheritance and a form of liberalism that treats children as merely future choosers. One could almost call it socialism. It is often said that Margaret Thatcher was an inconsistent neoliberal, in that she believed in free markets, but not in a free society, in that she wanted to shrink the state, but actually ended up failing to do so. But actually, I think Margaret Thatcher, in that respect, was highly consistent, and that her failure to shrink the state was totally predictable. Because a free market requires a strong state. If you're prepared to tolerate the injustices that a truly free market will create, then you have to have a strong state to resist the anger that those injustices will cause. Similarly, if you believe in open markets but, not, but are not prepared to tolerate those injustices, you also need a strong state to alleviate the consequences of the markets. That, I believe, is the story of New Labour, trying to harness the best of markets and then trying to collect, correct their failures through the state. The consequence of these good intentions is that over the last 13 years, the state has been too strong in respect of society and not strong enough in respect of markets. Our unwillingness to be more hands-on with the market has required us to be too hands-on with the state. When the state overreaches, it undermines society's ability to solve problems itself. So, for example, if we try to tell parents that they need a criminal record bureau check before giving lists to the children of their friends, we undermine their enthusiasm for helping others. We undermine the way that society can be strong. Similarly, if trade unions end up trying to achieve the majority or all of their goals through legislation, they undermine their very reason for existing, because if everybody shares in the benefits they create, why would anybody join a trade union in the first place? To get out of this self-defeating cycle of good intentions, we need to create the conditions for people to take power and for society to be reciprocal. Like Tony before us, we need to remember that nominal power is just the power of those who already have. 
But with state, society and markets in balance, each is less likely to crowd the other out. And then, and only then, can the people flourish. Conversely, when anyone dominates, people are overpowered. If our collective institutions are strong and in balance, we will respect the dignity of the individual by remembering that they need to solve their own problems, but in conditions that make this realistic, not a game that they are set up to fail from the start. The power game needs new rules, where people are guaranteed work and earn a living wage, where they control their public services, where children don't grow up in poverty, where usury is outlawed, where a good life includes a shared culture, where the welfare state is reciprocal, where our democracy is representative and not for sale, where, when we say power, we mean it. Thank you very much. The LSC has, of course, a long tradition of engaging with politics and of being a meeting place between academia, politics, and policy discussion, partly because, of course, it was founded by the Fabians. The chair I hold is the Graham Wallace chair, which, of course, bears the name of Graham Wallace, himself a Fabian, and has been held by people such as Harold Lasky, very much in the traditions you are thinking. But also the LSE is the centre of these things because it's London, and here you have academia, ideas and politics meet. The point of me saying this by way of thanking you is that, you know, here at the LSE, politicians actually are not so rare, you guys are a dime a dozen. We hear a lot of politicians here on a regular basis, but I have to say I've rarely heard such a thoughtful presentation, which is the point I'm trying to build up to. And I'd like to first of all thank you for your, your thoughtfulness and your compelling presentation, which I, I really thought was marked out from many of the speeches I've heard at the LSC from politicians before. So first of all, thank you very much. Now having affirmed that and said that, now is of course the time to poke at it and to deconstruct it. And I have myself some questions, but as the chair, it's not my job to first of all, first of all, ask them, but to ask the audience to, to raise issues. We generally like in the Miliband lecture series to take questions in clusters of four or five, because then at least we have a sense of what the audience is thinking and not just one or two people. So in that spirit, um, let me just see where we go. So I'm going to stand up, because from there I can't see people over here. So yes, please. Do you want to just stand up, say who you are, and offer a sharp question? And that means no statements. Gentlemen at the back. Yes, you. He was probably at university 10 years ago. We'll come on to that later. All right, fair question. Yes. Uh, my name is Peter Souza. Um, the last time I heard you speak was at the Labour Party conference when you were debating with Roy Hattersley, and he was coming on the side of equality of outcomes and portraying you as more about equality of opportunity. And sort of coming from that start, I was pleased to hear you speak about actually some issues to do with equality of outcomes, things like. Uh, guaranteed jobs, um, opening up catchment areas, which you know target the fundamentals of inequalities of outcomes. Um,
But perhaps, for me, my, my, my big concern is um, maybe the, the addressing, you, you spoke about looking at uh, inequality of incomes. Um, but maybe, is that enough? Do we need to start thinking about inequality of wealth, start thinking about wealth tax as ways, actually the big inequality in this country is of wealth, you know? Um, it's something like the, the richest 1% uh, of the population owns, well, I can't remember the figures, you, you probably know better than me, but you get the gist of my concern. Okay, thank you. Yes, moving on. We'll move in across the room. Uh, yeah, Keith Raffin, just uh, the first point, two, two very brief points. Isn't the fact that campaigning organizations are now so strong is precisely because people are fed up with political parties. It doesn't prove that political parties can be strong. It's in fact they've become strong because of the withering way of political parties. I mean, the RSPB, as it's well known, it's the old argument, uh, has more members than all political parties put together. The second thing is just in relation to the state becoming stronger in relation to the market. You didn't mention this in the context of the European dimension or the global dimension. And obviously, if there is to be regulation of the market, then uh, that is a global question, it's also a European question. Thank you. Yes, gentlemen at the back. Thank you. Um, John Hume, just wondering whether we have a bit more to learn from the United States. In particular, Barack Obama appears to be a great deal more critical about the banks uh, than our own administration. Please comment. Okay, that's four. All from guys so far. Come on. Uh, anyone else? Yes, lady over there, please. Thank you. Hello, Alexandra Kemp, Northwest Norfolk Labour Party. Thank you very much, James, for your speech on creating powerful people and reciprocal society. How are we going to address structural disadvantages in the labour market, inequalities, for example, I'm thinking about agency workers, people who are still excluded from the sort of advantages that other people enjoy in the workforce? Okay, that's five. Jane, enough to start with? Yeah, I think so. Um, so you, you, we can swap. Yep. Why do you stand okay. up? Why wait ten years? Uh, was the first question. I sorry, I didn't catch your uh, your name. Um, I think things were very different ten years ago. I think we were, in, in a way, coming out, as I was saying, of. Uh, 1989, probably what was more important for us in 1979, I think left politics was sort of slightly timid, and I would characterise New Labour as having tried to do the very best it could within essentially the ideological settlement which it, um, uh, which it found. And I mean, although communism was not ever the ideology of the Labour Party, there was something about the sort of hope and confidence of the centre-left, which died in 1989, because that sense of there being a possibility of a better society had first been sort of pretty much hold below the water by 1979, then 1989 uh, collectively felt like the end of that, which is why I think the word socialism has become so difficult to use in British, uh, in British politics. So I would say partly that the ideological framework has changed quite a lot, both through um, the credit crunch, sort of rebalancing 1979, uh, but also I would say through the experience that we've had in government, both good and bad. I'd say that we came into power actually with quite a bold set of reforms for restructuring market power, so trade union legislation, um, the minimum wage most obviously, four weeks paid leave, um, but we didn't actually renew that. So we came in with good democratic reforms, good market reforms, but over time we came to rely more and more on public services and um, redistribution. 
And that's, I think, because of this point that we, was, we became hands-off with the market, and therefore we had to be too hands-on with the state. You can be hands-off with the market and just say, okay, whatever the consequences are, if inequality rises or if people work poor, we don't really care, it's their, it's, their own, it's their own fault. But if you don't accept that, as New Labour didn't, you actually end up having to put very, very much more pressure on the state, and I would say that can be self-defeating. You can end up trying to do too much and actually undermining the responsibility that people themselves, the market and the society have for achieving, uh, for achieving change. I completely agree about uh, inequality of, uh, of wealth, but just to sort of maybe sort of pull out a place where maybe there might be a disagreement, I'm not saying that the Gini coefficient is the be-all and end-all. I actually think in some ways that just as GDP is an important measure but one that can actually be quite uh, distorting of political action, I think the Gini coefficient can have the same, the same effect, either because people just say oh, it doesn't matter at all, which I think is wrong, or if the only goal of policy or the primary goal of policy becomes to reduce it. I completely buy the argument that inequality causes all sorts of other problems, but I don't see any evidence that the best way of dealing with those problems is just to reduce the Gini coefficient itself through redistribution. I think redistribution is important, but the, re the reason that you want to do it is to make people powerful, to make sure that they have both a combination of enough money, but also the education that they need, the ability to get on at work, the ability to resist change, to come together in their communities to shape the way that they get public services and the way that the market works. So I'm saying that inequality of outcome matters and that the Labour Party should always have been confident about saying that inequality matters, but we should also have been very, very clear about which inequalities we thought mattered most. Not to say that we, we don't care about the, cap, the gap between the, the middle and the super rich, but to say actually the first problems that we're going to deal with are child poverty, in-work poverty, and corrosive, uh, corrosive disadvantage, things like drug abuse or long-term unemployment, which undermine your chance of having any, uh, any kind of real, of real opportunity. Uh, in terms of, uh, of wealth, um, Graham Cook, my colleague at, uh, at Demos, has just written a very good pamphlet on inequality, which makes uh, precisely this point, which actually says that we should be looking, for example, in inheritance tax um, at moving towards a system where you actually tax the receipt rather than the giving. So actually, the, you, know, you would both be able to make it juster and potentially more revenue-raising by having something which focused on the receipt rather than the, uh, uh, rather than the giving of the inheritance or the passing on of the, of the inheritance. Um, I'm not sure that on Keith, on your point, I'm not sure that shows that political parties can't do it. Um, in fact, I just think it's hard work. You know, I think political parties went for, have gone for the last 50 years, they've gone for the easy thing, which is to go on the telly, hope that the votes come in, and then, you know, you govern, and when someone else gets a chance, then, well, there we are. Actually, if you really want to organise uh, communities, if you really want to root your parties in society, you need to do a huge amount of work. You need to know who your members are, you need to know... Uh, how, what their interests are, you need to organise them together, you need to compromise your interests, you need to work out who your um, focus of action is, you need to do all of the things which community organisation and indeed trade unions and the labour movement and the non-conformist churches did in the creation of the Labour Party and the labour movement between 1850 and 1950. But we've just kind of forgotten how to do it and we need to rediscover it. We particularly need to rediscover it if we go for some kind of electoral reform. I'm, I'm, str I'm a strong believer in electoral reform but I think for anybody in the, in the Labour Party, you also do need to do it with a, a realist hat on, which is to recognise that this could be a huge threat for uh, centre-left politics. If you look at 
the Dutch, for example, where they have 10 or 15, they've had 10 or 15% support in some opinion polls, you need to have an argument for why a centre-left ideology is important to organise people. So you need to have a claim which is as strong as the, the claim of the, kind of the Green or the single-issue parties. But you also need to root yourself in communities so that you don't just get washed off the, uh, off the side of the hill when difficulties, uh, when difficulties arrive. Um, and on, on Europe, I completely agree that um, uh, Europe and global policy is, uh, uh, is vital. Now, on the fifth question, I've just written down John and underlined it. Uh, what, what did you say, John? Sorry? Obama. Obama, yes. I'm not sure that Obama's been more radical on what he's done on financial regulation. I just think he sold it better. I mean, actually, I remember, I remember one day I was in the National Economic... I think I can tell this. I was in the National um, Economic Council, uh, which Gordon set up after the credit crunch, and it's after Obama had brought in some pretty eye-catching stuff on getting rid of bonuses. Um, uh, and actually, Gordon was able to do a very good uh, explanation of why actually what we'd done was much, much tougher. You know, how we'd fired everybody who'd been involved on the boards, how actually their remuneration was now being set in a much more precise way. But it was just more complicated and therefore less easy to, less easy to sell. So I'm not sure that Obama, I mean, Gordon, for example, has, has sort of championed the Tobin tax probably before, or certainly before the Americans. So I, I don't think he could be accused of being less radical. It may be that Barack Obama has been better at selling it, but coming, better, coming second best to Barack Obama in a political selling contest is not necessarily the worst thing, not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, and Alexander, I completely agree about your point about uh, structural disadvantages in the labour market. I guess the thing I would say is that we, we shouldn't put too much pressure on regulation and legislation. If you try and completely deal with the problems of exploitation through legislation, you end up, A, potentially reducing the number of jobs which are there, but also... I think forgetting the other tools which matter, such as giving people more power by saying that they'll get, will guarantee them a job, that means their negotiating power is much greater. And then I would say through the old-fashioned method, old method of trade union organisation. I mean, no labour market has ever cried out for trade unions as much as uh, this one does today, but unfortunately too often, with some notable ex uh, exceptions, it fails to provide, they fail to provide that role. So it would be better if they came forward to do that rather than doing it all through legislation. Yes, let's uh, move across the room. Roger Little. Um, James, uh, <clears throat> uh, this is Roger Little. Um, uh, that was a wonderful lecture, and uh, thank you very much for it. Um, <clears throat> my question's really about how different the kind of social democratic revisionism that you're expounding would be from the past 50 years. You know, in the... Crossland in the 50s uh, basically committed social democrats to the idea that you advanced equality through furthering economic growth that you then redistributed through public expenditure. Now, New Labour uh, said that it wasn't going down that road, but in practice that's what New Labour has done, uh, uh, ha used growth um, to finance big increases in spending on public services. Um, now, do you think that that um, governing model is bust now, and what in your vision uh, is the role of public expenditure in achieving the good society? Tough question. Yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad it's you who are going to draw. Gentleman at the back, anyone at the top want to ask a question? I'll come on to you in a minute. Okay. Uh, Varun Sitharam. 
Uh, I just wondered, given what you said today, uh, who would you like to see as the next leader of the Labour Party? Ooh. Okay, that's an easy one. Okay, at the top. Yes. Thank you. Um, yes. Uh, hello. Um, in your speech, you mentioned um, unemployment benefits reform, and you said that uh, if uh, you, the people could not find a job within a year, and uh, you would find one for them, and if they refuse to take it, uh, you would uh, take away their benefits. Now, how does this square with uh, what is mostly by now economic consensus that you cannot? practically have full employment. It will drive, drive up um, uh, inflation to unsustainable rates. And how can you then threaten people who say you could only find um, very low-end jobs to, uh, to take them uh, and withdraw their benefits otherwise? Thank you. Okay, so let me take this a moment to ask you. Um, I think it's just uh, three, make three points, really. And these are questions. Come back to you in a second. Thank you. Um, one is, I was very uh, surprised. I mean, I suppose it's not a surprise that you are really engaging in rethinking the social democratic tradition, but assuming, as it were, the nation state is a sort of hermetically sealed entity, and the question of politics is about essentially the question of choices within that. But of course, today, Britain is part of the European Union, and it's part of a much more global economy. And the importance of saying that is that both the European Union and global economy slice into and affect policy choices. So the challenge for social democrats today is not only to understand the way they slice into the range of debates and policy choices, but how social democracy has to be rethought as a project that is not just anchored in silo of a nation-state, but also expands across borders. And if it doesn't, then it becomes very hard to see how things like financial market transaction tax, carbon tax, and so on, can be part of its agenda. That's the first point. The second point is I liked a, a, a lot your remarks on philosophical concepts and institutions and policies, but if this were an essay at the LSE, I would have to say I don't quite see the connection between the three. That is, I didn't quite see the work that the philosophical machinery or concepts did for you in selecting what, exactly what was in and out. And I, I really wanted to ask you at some point, you know, if you reduce your, your statements about political philosophy to three propositions, what would they be? And how would they then work as filters for thinking about policy and so on? And I thought those connections were not as developed, you know, as they might have been. It's easy to say that, of course, so I say that with the utmost sympathy. You know, it's easy to ask these questions, damn hard to answer them in a compelling and sophisticated way. Um, and the final question I want to ask you is your stress on emphasis on organization, labor movement, and bringing organization back into the way politics is done. One of the striking things is it strikes me that, to put it crudely, is a very sort of 19th century view. Important that it is, but if we live in the world of the, you know, the IT revolution, the computer revolution. Surely one of the ways in which we connect people more to politics is today is the way they already connect themselves, which is by linking politics in a more persuasive and compelling way with the machine 
machineries of the web, mobile phone technology, and so on and so forth. So it becomes possible to think about politics now in a much more interactive way, with a much more greater velocity of interaction between politicians and activists and so on, if you think about how to mediate those links with IT and the new technology revolution. Of course, again, that's easy to say and not so easy to think through, but I think actually the propositions, if thought through, are very radical and then don't, wouldn't require you to put quite so much an emphasis on just, let's say, community organization. Important though it is, it doesn't necessarily engage, I mean, young people today, you know, my teenage kids, I mean, they, I mean, they don't read interesting newspapers, they don't think about interesting questions on the whole, they don't go to French movies, they don't know what the new left is, and so on and so forth. But they are very quick to think about issues, and they are very quick to know how to connect to those things. But they do it in a different way, because they're kids of a different era. And I just think somehow that kind of political emphasis also needs perhaps to be linked to what you're, what you're saying, but that's enough of me. Let me just finish with one person up the top who wanted to ask a question, and then we'll go back to you, James. Good luck. Thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent questions. Um, Roger, how different is this from what Crossman would have said? I, I guess one of the things, just to preface this, is you know, lots of people said when Roy Hattersley, um, having been a sort of great modernizer and arguably right wing within the Labour Party, then um, turned on Tony Blair, that this was him just being self indulgent and not being prepared to stick with the difficult decisions that he'd argued for all his life. And actually, I think that was pretty unfair because you know, if you see him as a Crosslandite, essentially Crossland had argued that the Labour Party shouldn't be so obsessed with public ownership, but rather than just having a sort of negative argument, he wanted to have a positive argument. He wanted to say this is actually a much more important thing, this thing over here, and the thing over here was a crusade for equality in effect. And I think that when Hattersley saw what looked like the government moving away from talking confidently about equality, he thought, well, actually, we've lost, we've lost the bad thing, but not gained, i.e., sort of an obsession with public ownership, but we've also lost the positive side of what Crossland had, um, had argued for. So I guess in one sense, what I'm trying to say is that we should recapture that Crosslandite idea that inequality is clearly something which undermines people's ability to be, uh, to be powerful and our society to be reciprocal, uh, but that we should think about so clearly but also that in trying to achieve that, we should not try and do it all through the state, nor do it all to people. So we need to have, as I was trying to say, active equality. People can't just be passively equal. You can't just have the government, uh, you can't just, can't just do it through redistribution. People have to take their own power if it's to actually feel real to them and feel just to everybody else. But also I would say that, and this is perhaps less a point about Crossman, but perhaps more a point about what happened to Labour after 1945, that we were sort of the victims of our own success. The, the, you know, the creation of the welfare state was so successful in practice and also in politics that actually we forgot the other things that we, we had and we became to a certain extent sceptical of them. We, I mean, you could quibble with some of this with the 60s and 70s governments, but certainly the 97 government became pretty reluctant to alter market outcomes 
wasn't impossible, but the kind of the starting point was the market outcome, and you then had to prove the case against it, and certainly became less confident about how you could use society to achieve those changes. So I would say it's pretty crosslandite in the sense that it feels comfortable with equality as a goal, but I, I hope what I'm saying is that we should have something which is wider in terms of the methods that we, that we use. Thank you for the next question, which was who, is the, who should the next Labour uh, leader be? I would say a job share between Amartya Sen and R.H. Tawney. <laughs> but I know Amartya Sen's very busy at the moment, so that bit may be difficult. Um, boom, boom, boom. Then two questions about how do you afford... Actually, no, the, the, the question which I took was how do you afford the sort of jobs guarantee, strict child poverty thing? How is it different from what our opponents might say? I think on those two, it's actually quite easy to be different from what our opponents might say. I mean, on the jobs guarantee, just as a matter of fact, we do this already for 18 to 24-year-olds. You know, every 18 to 24-year-old is told that they will be guaranteed a job within a year, and the Conservatives are opposed to that, to that policy. So I think that's, um, uh, that's just a sort of just a matter of fact. On child poverty, they like to say that they agree with the goal of eradicating child poverty, but I just don't believe them. I just think that they don't want to have a dividing line which they would find difficult to, to justify, uh, given their desire to be progressive, and I don't think they would have ever have created it had uh, we not been in, uh, we'd not been in power. Um, how can we afford it? I mean, I think actually the job guarantee, um, again, another very good forthcoming paper by, uh, by Graham Cook, um, the job guarantee uh, he shows in that paper is something which could easily be afforded afforded within existing resources, um, mostly by transferring what is actually quite badly spent money in the skills budget at the moment into what would be much better uh, spent uh, money in, um, uh, in the welfare system or in the, in the job system. And then on the two questions about um, uh, poverty and, uh, and the jobs guarantee thing and having conditionality in the welfare system. And people always say, look, if you want to have a tough welfare system or if you want to have a conditional welfare system, isn't this anti-poor? And, of course, if you're just doing it to punish people, as, for example, some of the American states have done after the 96 reforms where they've said there will just be term limits on the amount of time that people can claim benefits, they can only have benefits for five years, of course then it does just push people into poverty. And actually the, the evidence about those reforms is they did exactly that. They aggravated uh, severe poverty. What I'm arguing for here is something completely different. What I'm arguing for is supportive conditionality, where you increase the amount of support that people get, but you also increase the expectation that they take it up. So I think if you're saying to people, we will find you a minimum wage job, then I think we're expected to say, we, we're right to be able to say, we will expect you to take it, take it up. And if that is more than people would get on, uh, on benefits, then I think that will be good for child poverty. Of course, you, you, know, you don't require mothers of uh, three-week-old children to, to do that, but just as the best welfare systems around the world, the Dutch, the Danish, the Swedish, do, you can have very high expectations of people as long as the support that you're offering um, uh, is real. And I, I, I'm sorry, I don't think that it's true that you can't have uh, such measures and have uh, um, inflation being contained. I mean... I think you only need to look at the experience of the last 10 or 15 years to see that high levels of employment were compatible with, um, uh, with low levels of inflation. And in any case, what we're not saying here is that you'll find everybody a job after the first day of unemployment. What you're saying is, after a year of looking for work, you would then get them a job. And so I think that would be enough of an incentive within the system that people would moderate their wage demands so that inflation was controlled. I also think it would expand the labour market, and in that sense 
increase competition, increase the supply of labour, and have a uh, sort of downward pressure on inflation that way as well. Um, and then on David's, uh, David's excellent uh, questions, I mean, I think, in a way, the easiest is on the EU, I just agree. You know, I think clearly all politics has to be done in a, in a European and global context. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, you know, I think my arguments could be made at a European level as well as a, as, as a, as a domestic, uh, domestic level. Now, the question about how does this translate, what is the link between the philosophy and the policy? I mean, if I had to have three points, it would be uh, make individuals powerful, first point. Secondly, make them powerful in respect of the market, the society, and the state, but keep all three of those in balance with each other so that no one dominates and doesn't overwhelm the individual. And thirdly, make society reciprocal. And how does that do the work to um, translate into policy? Well, for example, in education, I would say, it says that it has to be power that you give to people, not just the appearance of power, but actually if you say you want to give people choice, you have to check whether it's real. And actually if what's happening is that you're saying that people have choice in schools, but actually it's the school which is uh, choosing the pupil, well, then you haven't given people real power. And you need to ask yourself whether you can do that through reform, through giving people choice. If not, you, you, you may well have to use another, uh, another method. So I would say that idea of power translates directly into policy. Um, in terms of the market, society, and the state, I would say that's what leads you to saying we were too hands-on with the market, too hands-off with the market, and therefore not hands-on enough with the, the state. And remembering that you've got these three tools which you could use, and actually if you end up only using one of them, you end up undermining your ability to use that tool. So that's why I would say that does work in terms of saying you need to think about how you can correct market outcomes, and that would be things like the living wage. And the third, a reciprocal society, I think leads you straight into why this is an argument for a centre-left idea of welfare reform, not a right-wing idea of welfare reform. It's about saying that, of course, we should help people and be compassionate for them, but they have to share the burden of governing. They have to share the burden of achieving those outcomes. And that if we as a society say, we will support you and give you a job or give you a decent level of benefits, then we're entitled to expect reciprocity in return from them, which is them playing, uh, playing their part. Now, in terms of the point about the internet, I think that's absolutely right. The internet has a clear, uh, a clear role to, to play. But also mobile technology and yeah. so on. Yeah, sorry, I was being too, yeah. too much time. Mobile technology, organisation of social networks, they have a role to play. But they can also be a, they can also be a wrong turn, I would say. And actually, if you look at the work of um, either Saul Alinsky or London Citizens in this country... What, they, they don't really use these organisations have come together to generate community power to achieve change which those communities self-create they're not really very based on the internet they're actually based on very old fashioned things like talking to people, meeting in their houses having weekend retreats working out what you want discussing, arguing, compromising and then coming together to do public actions not, not just internet actions so I think it's, um, I think it's definitely you have to do the two as to how I can persuade your children to watch French films, I don't know. That one's slightly bumpy. Sorry. One more round. Sure. We have uh, one more round. Um, just look at the top. Yes.
Uh, hi, I'm Ian Buller from uh, uh, the Contextual Theology Centre and London Citizens. Um, my question is about uh, your discussion of empowering and providing a space for civil society. I'm wondering to what extent that would have to be superficial, given that that may be harnessed by a conservative agenda, and in that case, you wouldn't want that in a left in in a left society. Yeah. Gentleman over there, then we'll come. You could be third. Question second over there, and then to you, third. Yeah. Anthony Barnett. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Barnett from Open Democracy. Uh, I appreciate very much the, the line of march that you're taking, James, and the, uh, but it seems to me just to put one mild initial uh, question mark there. When you talk about how the party, the Labour Party, because I think this also applies to the Conservative Party, perhaps even more so, simply forgot about how to organise. Uh, uh, and their internal democracy. Actually, there's a whole set of ways in which the internal democracy of the Labour Party, I don't speak as a party member, was hollowed out, and the same argument is now taking place in the Conservative Party. There was a drive to ensure that the party policy and leadership was not dependent upon party membership. Uh, and similarly, when you talk about uh, the state and the role of the state and being too much pressure because it's it, it's, it, the assumption is that the, that the intentions of those with executive power is always benign. But there's a, and there's, there's, there needs to be a certain amount of more modesty here. The state, uh, as with the market, is a, a very dangerous power. And uh, you come from a government that supported uh, interning people, in effect, holding people without charge for 42 days, that has obfuscate, has, is in a way collaborated with torture, possibly. Um, these are very, very serious allegations, and people fear the state, and for good reason. So there needs to be a sense of, of uh, there is a, an executive power which Labour grasped, and perhaps for the reasons that you say, that it didn't have an ideology, and it was travelling light, it picked up a, uh, a, a very heavy weaponry indeed, and some sense of self-criticism about that. If you want to talk about liberty, it is the capacity not to have despotic power, which matters not whether you exercise or not. Greg Fisher. Um, it chimes with the last question, actually. Um, what are the implications for the British Constitution of, of what you've just presented? I'm conscious that we have a, an unelected head of state, uh, a prime minister who's de facto head of, um, head of state who isn't elected to be head of state, an upper house that isn't elected, uh, and a lower house that can be largely ignored by the government. Um, that doesn't stand well with uh, the issues of freedom and, uh, and um, personal freedom that you talked about. Can I, can I just build on that remark in, in, in a way? Because um, when you when you send out your views, I, mean, I, 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 I am sympathetic to them intellectually. But when you start with making individuals more powerful, I just think of a sort of typical household meal with powerful individuals, and I just think to myself, you know, how can we make all these people less powerful? Or go to a departmental meeting where you have all these arrogant professors, and the question is, you know, how the issue is not as is a word the social question is not how you make these individuals more powerful, but how can you create greater reciprocity? a greater sense of the interdependency and relational interdependency of the people that are there around a common project. So I can see the political grounds for appealing for powerful individuals, but history is replete with powerful individuals who have destroyed collectivities. And the, 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 the cry is a potentially 
you know, you know, you know, it potentially cuts in time. I'm not linking you to Margaret Thatcher on this, but you know, Margaret Thatcher could have said, I am for the individual, I am for the empowerment of the individual. And indeed, I think that is what Tony Blair, you know, said as well. So it comes, it, it has quite complex resonances to make that your starting point. But what I actually think underpins a lot of what you say are Republican ideas, not in the sense of anti-monarchical, what your position is in the monarchy is, is neither here nor there in this respect, but in the genuine sense of a lot of what you say echoes in classical Republican thinking, from Rome to the Renaissance and so on, where the issue is freedom from domination, where in a sense you don't define freedom necessarily in positive terms, but what freedom becomes is the struggle against different forms of power and domination, and once you have, can think about that, then you can think about the meaning of freedom, freedom from domination. I think that's powerfully in your ideas, and there's this powerful Republican notion that runs through it. I just thought I would say that. <laughs> um, yes? Okay, we're getting close to uh, finishing at eight. Anyone desperate? Yes, the lady at the back there. Well, both of you, since we're, you know, the men have outnumbered women in the terms of questions by an indecent amount. They're two in with their hands up, so we should end with you both. In a second, yeah? Hi, I'm a student and I'm a little bit nervous. Um, you talk about inequality, but you seem to not talk about inequality of race. And I was just wondering what your idea on that is. And. Yes, the woman in front of you. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Sandra and I represent Radarike. Um, taking into account your commitment to equality and I assume social justice, what's your view on tax havens? Because I think this is one of the issues which should be tackled if we, if we want to really deal with social injustice both in UK and globally. Thank you. Five minutes to wrap up. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, to everybody. These are really brilliant questions, and uh, I've enjoyed this evening hugely. Um, could you not say the same about uh, Thatcherism, uh, teaching the Labour Party a lesson? Yes, you could. Um, I think you can see the history of the last uh, 30 years in politics in Britain as Thatcher teaching the Labour Party a lesson about markets and us now having taught the Conservative Party a lesson about society. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is they made some very obvious mistakes about society. I know Margaret Thatcher never said there's no such thing as society, but actually kind of forgetting the importance of social justice, of dealing with inequality, of how hard it was to prevent exclusion. Uh, and I think, at least from what they say, those are lessons which uh, uh, they have come to learn in the last uh, 13 years. And similarly, we were very stupid about markets just in terms of having allowed ourselves to be seen as being against them. Um, and as I tried to say in my, in my speech, we should actually value markets and embrace them, but only when they work and not be slavish to them. Um, oh dear, I've done it again. I've written down Ian Superficial, which wasn't a comment on Ian. Who was he? <laughs> what was the question? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, 
Look, I think that's much more of a problem when you're saying um, this is a question about whether strengthening civic organisations and creating space for them could end up being superficial because they would be dominated by people who the state wouldn't agree with and then guess would take, take that power back. I think that's much more of a problem when you're sort of subcontracting public services to particular faith groups. Um, I don't think that's a reason for not doing it. I think there are, you know, there are cert certain rules that you can put in place. For example, in academies where we have lots of religious sponsors, we've also got some pretty tough rules about the things that have to be, that have to be taught. But I think, in a way, that's quite a good way of illustrating the point that I'm making, that it's not just about the way that civic organisations can deliver public services, it's the way that civic organisations can be powerful in themselves. And actually, the way that... Now, in, in, to pick up David's point about what, what, what work does that do, I think that does quite a lot of work in terms of the way that you would approach, for example, reform of civic organisations or self-regulation. I mean, actually, the, the Labour government's instinct about self-regulation or about organisations like um, the accountancy profession or the law was that they had to be reformed, or even sometimes they had to be sort of abolished, or you know, they were a cartel. And actually, I think that was to misunderstand, or they had to be legislated, for. And actually that was to misunderstand that this is an autonomous space and actually they preserve methods of being such as academic rigour or journalistic independence in the case of the BBC and Channel 4 which government itself couldn't do just by passing a law. And secondly actually if you're going to reform them it would suggest a different way of doing reform that you try and work with the reformers within those organisations to change them and you would do it through the hard work of discussion and negotiation rather than just saying well we're going to pass a law to say you know, you have to let more people into your organisation or whatever it might be. So I hope, it, I hope it wasn't... I hope it doesn't have to be superficial. On Anthony's two very, very good points, um, yes, it's true, the Labour Party did become frightened about internal democracy. I think that's partly because we were very much hooked on this idea of democracy as a method for decision rather than as much, or even perhaps more, within Labour... Uh, parties being a method of discussion and actually if we said at Labour Party conference that we're very happy to have votes on everything but that they're votes which express the view of the party in which then the government or the NEC can form a view on but we recognise that they have different roles then actually that would be much much easier. It's because we confused the role of the movement which was to say what they thought with the role of the NEC which was to make decisions we got ourselves in all sorts of problems because then if the movement ever said anything which was not right for the interests which the NEC or the government were representing. After all, the government has to govern for everybody, not just for people who are members of parties. Because we got into that, we then had to control everything that the, the movement said, everything that we voted on. Actually, if you separate out those two, I think you could make it much easier to have much more internal democracy of discussion. And then you could say, where we are talking about democracy of decision, actually, let's, make, let's be clear where that is and make it real. So actually, you'd become comfortable with much greater range of views within the Labour movement. So actually this thing that it, it's embarrassing if the Labour First Minister in Scotland disagrees with the Labour Prime Minister in London, actually why do we worry about that? You know, they have different interests, they represent different people, they can agree sometimes and disagree sometimes, it's fine. And that would actually stop the infantilising which has happened of politicians who are further down the supply, as it were, in the, in the British state, uh, further down the supply chain. Um, you're completely right to say that governments are not always benign. And that's why I'm saying there should be democracy within the state, but also this point about having a strong society and market to be able to balance them out. So you both need to have reforms within the state, but also to have the other two being strong, so that when uh, a malevolent government wants to, uh, to abuse those powers, it can, be, it can be resisted more easily. 
Uh, and that leads me on to Greg's point, which is to say, yes, it does imply a whole bunch of other reforms. It means electing the Lords. Um, it means, I think, a, a thoroughgoing reform of Parliament. I think, actually, the role of MPs has now become completely um, uh, futile most of the time, and we need, to, we need to sort of separate the two out. We need MPs to have much more power to control their own timetable, to elect their own representatives, to initiate laws, and to, again, recognise they have a different set of interests and the government has a different set of interests. Um, boom, 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 boom. Uh, I think you're right, there is a lot of Republican um, uh, thinking in what, I was, uh, in what I was saying, and I think it's partly about resisting domination, but it's also, I think, about... I mean, Amartya Sen would really... He hates it when people say that his argument is too individualistic. And I genuinely believe that his argument itself is not individualistic. But the way in which it gets used ends up being too individualistic. So people start, as you're right to say Margaret Thatcher did, and to a certain extent Tony Blair ended up doing, although it's not where he started, it ends up being used in a way which is, OK, we get the individuals, we make them powerful, and then that's great, they'll be happy. Whereas actually if you, make, if you start from an idea, if you balance the two, so if you have both individual power but also, not second, you know, in equal importance, a reciprocal society, I think those two avoid either the dangers of French republicanism, I would say, which ends up infringing the, the, the rights of the individual, for example, their debates on, on the burqa, but you also end up avoiding the difficulty of, uh, of some of new labour. Um, and then in terms of just the final, uh, the final three questions, quickly, yes, it does mean you have to deal with tax havens, absolutely, and there's lots being done on that following the, um, the G20. I think it also means you need to deal with tax havens in, in our own country, and that means looking how you can get rid of the exploitation of, uh, of non-DOMs. If people are working here, they should be paying tax here, and if that means that some people leave, well, so be it. Um, and in terms of race and citizenship, uh, actually, this is an opportunity to plug the book which goes with this lecture, uh, which Graham and I have, um, uh, have edited. Uh, there's a big bit on citizenship and immigration in the introduction, which I can point you to, which deals a bit with matters of, of race. But essentially, I think that part of the way that we deal with immigration is to move from having a debate about numbers to a debate about rules. So instead of this sort of crazy Dutch auction between the parties of pretending that they're going to reduce the numbers when actually they won't, I think we should talk about the rules which um, operate when people come to our country, how they have to contribute, um, and then how they can earn their right to share in our birthright, which is the way that the welfare state was created by our forebears. So I hope I answered all your questions, and thank you very much for what was a great evening. Well, you've already done what I was going to suggest you do, so it uh, just remains for me to thank you formally. As I said already, it was, I thought it was a tremendously thoughtful uh, lecture. We look forward to the development of your ideas further, and hopefully you will have the opportunity to pursue these ideas and these policy suggestions in the future. So we wish you great success and well, and good evening to everybody.